Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And continuing in chapter 13. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And our second reading is from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus continues his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heaven, Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything you do to others, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Justin. Hello. Oh, thanks, Craig. We're Anglicans, we don't uh, interact too much, do we? Hey, it's really great to have you and uh, terrific if you're on live stream. Uh, we understand second best, of course, to not be meeting face to face. You know, the Apostle John talks about longing to see 
you face to face, but we do understand that people can't or won't be able to in this season, uh, so thankful if you're on live stream. I did just make a comment then on live stream. I went to YouTube and it made a noise, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but I did make a little note there saying, say hi and let us know that you are on live stream so that we can be part properly participate with you uh, through this season. It is Father's Day, although Father's Day finishes after lunch, right? Um, I've got two reflections briefly that, you know, tangential to Father's Day. One of them is my father came to St. Philip's this morning at 10.30 and uh, he came out and said the message by Bishop Robert Forsyth was terrific, but he said he was disappointed. I say, why is that? He says, I became a Christian in my mid-30s, he said. He was 30-something years old when he gave his life to the Lord. And he said, while I was exploring my faith, it was Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, that was so important to me. Have a look at it. It's on page 7. He said to me, it was ask and it will be given to you, he said. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He said, it's a promise. He said, I didn't pick that up before. I kept saying, I'll knock and maybe the door will be opened. He said, the moment I found out it will be opened, that was when I started to have confidence in the goodness of God. And so here I am, you know, what am I, 50? My father's 81, and I find out for the first time in my whole life a little piece, a little piece of the puzzle about a, a, a man in his mid-age. Can you call someone 35 mid-age? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. I get a little glimpse into my father's heart this morning, and that's, that's not often, you know, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, the second thing is, Jesus actually gives Father's Day advice here. Uh, this is, I know there's like five new dads here somewhere, and um, maybe on live stream. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus in verses 9 and 10 basically says, you know, if your, dad, if your kid asks you for a fish, don't give him a snake. That's pretty good advice, don't you think? Or if they ask for a piece of bread... A stone is probably not a good idea. You know, it's not high standards, but it's pretty good advice. Give your child what they ask for. Of course, Jesus contrasts you who are evil, you know, you who get it all wrong. You know how to get it right. Amazing how much more God does. We're going to explore that and these incredible verses as, uh, as we explore it together. So I'm going to pray. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, give us hearts that are willing, minds that are active, and ears that hear your Spirit speaking to us as we explore Jesus' words in your presence. We pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. I prayed that prayer because I didn't have the courage to offer another one. Imagine, if you will, praying this prayer to God from your heart. Imagine this. Dear God, judge me in the same way that I judge others. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Pretty bold, pretty scary, potentially life-changing if you prayed that prayer and meant it. I worried about that prayer, so I chose something safer. We're in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking simply and clearly here, provocatively, provocatively, of course. It's meant to move us, put a bomb under us. These are words that are meant to be taken seriously, very seriously, but not legally. 
Jesus is offering a breathtaking vision of life in this complex world, living in light of Jesus' kingship. This is about discipleship. After all, in chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger, those who thirst for righteousness, for rightness, for they will be filled. The kingdom of God, then, is for those who long. You'll know in our strategic planning for 2021 through five years, we'd love you to join us on September the 30th on Zoom for one hour. But we have a goal. We're asking members of our five congregations here in the parish of Churchill to seek a deeper discipleship, deeper than the one you currently have. And this is it. This is a deeper discipleship, the Sermon on the Mount. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he said, to be a disciple entails nothing less than, than to become a visible alternative to the world. Surely in the area of making judgments, discerning right and wrong, we can be the alternative. Today we see Jesus' words are an antidote to pride. And in this case, the way we crucify each other in our hearts, the way we judge others. Today, 12 verses, such profound depth, containing famously such classics as Judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, Seeing the plank in your own eye, as you take the speck of dust in your brother's eye. Pearls before swine, and ask and seek and knock again. The Microsoft grammar check was finishing the sentences for me as I was typing this out. So common are they in our society. Jesus sums up this section, uh, if if it can be treated as a section, in chapter 7, verse 12, the so-called golden rule, so in everything, Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Literally, this is the law and the prophets. It's interesting, this isn't really much a rule as a vision for life and living. Jonathan Pennington says in his commentary, the golden rule is not so much a rule, but a vision. Maybe then it should be the golden vision. Do to others what you would have them do to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want to know what God wants, some of the law and the prophets, you want to live the way God requires, you want a vision for that, well, think about the way you like to be treated and treat others the same way. It challenges Hypocrisy. It's a memorable catch-all phrase designed to move you, I think, but it can't mean everything as though the way you treat people is the measure of righteousness. That can't be true. And it can't also be true in every circumstance. It's not meant to take it uh, legally. I mean, there are some people that treat themselves poorly. And in fact, there are circumstances where people treat themselves poorly and out of that place treat others poorly. God has a will and a way, and I think Paul gets to that in our uh, first reading, Romans 13, verse 9, the commandments, do not commit adultery, that's a commandment. You shall not murder, even reputations, that's a commandment. You shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever command from God there may be, they're summed up in one command, Love your neighbour as yourself. Love your neighbour with all the energy with which you care for yourself. All of that, by the way, so hard, verse 12, in the modern world. Especially, by the way, in the online world. And in the work world. 
where someone is always a little bit toxic, where someone is always in error, where someone is voting the wrong way. And part of you wants to come down on them like a ton of bricks. So how do you do verse 12 in a world stripped of grace? Well, I want to argue from the passage that you'll need to be sensitive. And I don't mean sensitive, you know, as in the sensitive male who's... I mean, that's good too, but... Um, I mean genuinely alive to four things. Genuinely sensitive to God as judge, firstly. Secondly, sensitive to your own faults. These are on page 8 of your zine. Sensitive to your own faults in verses 3 and 5. Sensitive to your audience in verse 6. And sensitive to God as given, not just as judge, in verses 7 through 11. Sensitive to God as judge. Sensitive to your own faults. Sensitive to your audience and sensitive to God as the one who gives. So firstly, sensitive to God as judge in verses 1 and 2. Jesus says in verse 1, Judge not, lest ye be judged. You can already see the t-shirt, can't you? Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, the first thing to note is the obvious, namely that there is a judgment. Jesus doesn't say it, but it's implied here. God will judge you. Here in verse 2, he says, according to the way you judge others. Judgment is implied here, um, certainly very much implied at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, where Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. Don't do that. Uh, Jesus says, if you build your house on sand, the rain comes down, the streams rose, the wind blew against that house. In the storm of God's judgment, the house fell with a great crash. Your house will fall. It's a word of judgment. So be aware, God is the judge. Now, there's an irony in chapter 7, verse 1, because it's used in our current society in memes everywhere. Haven't seen the T-shirt, but someone make it. I'll buy it. Should be black with white writing. Don't know why, but, you know, judge not. Do not judge me. And it's used in our current society basically to say there isn't a judgment and you shouldn't be a part of it. Don't ever judge me. Don't judge me. Let me do whatever I want to do. Let me have the affair that I want to do, but destroying my marriage. Let me download the porn. Don't judge me. Let me bully my co-worker. Judge not has become in our society a trump card that wins every confrontation. You have no right to speak into my life, is sometimes what is said. I saw a bumper sticker a while ago now, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's fly anymore, it said this, I'm, pra I'm practicing rampant non-judgmentalism. I'm practicing rampant non-judgmentalism. It's funny, I'm a Generation Xer, and I think that's language in my generation, but I don't think it works for any millennial. Uh, you know, because we really want to make moral judgments about racism that exists and call it out. We want to make the judgments about sexism or homophobia or Islamophobia or toxic behaviour. You know, we want to be a society that calls out behaviour, but we struggle with it when somebody does it to us. 
that bumper sticker is getting at something good, though, about practicing rampant non-judgmentalism, because I don't know about you, but I'm done with it. I'm cooked with judgmentalism. I don't want to be that person who spends all their time with a critical spirit working out why everybody else is wrong in the world but me. I don't want to be that guy. I know that it eats away at my heart with pride and it has a potential to ruin lives. The second thing to note about verses 1 and 2 is that it's meant to be provocative. We all know that it's impossible in a moral universe not to judge. The word do not judge, by the way, like in English, has a vast semantic range. It can go from, you know, discerning behaviour to, you know, judge, jury and executioner. People tend to say it means you can do this but not that. But I think Jesus is being more provocative than that. He's saying before you do any judgment, consider this, you see. And it's meant to provoke you before you decide to take a moral stand. You can take a moral stance but be careful before you do so. In other words, in a moral world, you have to judge. You have to discern a bully. You have to call out the injustice. You have to protect the child. You have to speak out for the oppressed. You have to say something when you know that someone's behavior is about to wreck their life. To say nothing is to not care. But it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, judge not. There was a time, and I think Generation X would say this, when, yeah, right, I'm with Jesus on this. You know, there is no right and wrong. That's why you should judge not. But now, I don't know if you notice it, but there's judgment everywhere. I feel it every time I log on. Some commentators, Rob Forsyth, the bishop, uh, calls them the less imaginative commentators. They try to say that Jesus is talking about one kind of judging, which you're allowed to do, but not another kind. After all, you don't want to be a moral zombie. Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 9, Hate what is evil, yes, amen, and cling to what is good. So Jesus expected you to judge, as in discern, but he didn't want you to have a critical spirit that bypassed your own faults. He didn't want you to be the judge, jury, and executioner over others. He didn't want you to be the one who determined who should counsel who out. Now, while that's all true, uh, to be discerning uh, without being the judge is a good idea, perhaps that's not what's going on here. Perhaps Jesus is being more provocative than that. He's saying, before you do any judging, consider this, God will judge you and know that he'll judge you according to his divine will, but even if he didn't do it according to his divine will, Imagine for a moment that he judged you on the courting, according to your own judgments about others, on the basis of your own judgments, let alone his good and perfect and just will. Would you survive? Hence the prayer, dear God, judge me in the same way that I judge others. That'll give you a moment of pause to pray that prayer. It'll give you a moment of pause before you get steamed up. It will cause humility before you get in there to make your point, before you get to do the good thing of taking a stand about what is right. C.S. Lewis wrote, May God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think, much less speak, of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And if on consideration one can find no faults of one's, on one's own side, then cry for mercy. For this must be the most dangerous delusion. 
The theme of God will judge is the reason you can love your enemies, chapter 5, verse 44. It's because you don't have to be the judge. You can relax in that space. You can hop off the throne. Judgment. In fact, Paul goes even further. The Apostle Paul says, I do not even judge myself for those who are self-critical. He says, that doesn't make me innocent. This is not just, I don't judge myself so that I can open the door to a rampant, ugly confidence. Because such a thing exists, doesn't it? I do not judge myself, says Paul, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Romans 12, verse 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, saith the Lord. On the contrary, since you know that God judges, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give her something to drink. So the point here is, be careful if you judge someone. You're going to do that. Pause before you do. Your own criteria will probably condemn you. Uh, God is judge. Will you pause before you pass judgment? Which leads to the second area of sensitivity. We need to be sensitive to our own faults, verses 3 to 5. This is related, so I'll be brief. This is the plank in your own eye moment. Uh, verses 3 to 5 are meant to be funny, not comedy club, club funny. I mean, you're not belly laughing. But, you know, it's supposed to give you a little snicker. There's a guy with a beam coming out of their eye. You know, you can see them, like, knocking things over as he walks in. But he's going in to get the speck of dust in his brother's eye. Boom. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You've got a plank in your own eye. That's embarrassing enough to have the plank in your own eye. You know, it's so extreme. You're supposed to visualize it. Your imagination. You'll never forget it, will you? You've, you, you? you've never forgot this since the first time you heard it. It's embarrassing enough to have a plank in your own eye, but there you are looking at the speck of dust in your brother's eye. David Wells wrote, how can, we, how can we be so knowledgeable about evil in the world and so innocent about sin in ourselves? And as if you didn't get it, he repeats himself in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck of dust out of your eye, when, literally, when, behold, there's a plank in your own. This is the definition of being a hypocrite. So Jesus tells you what to do. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice the purpose of removing the plank. Did you see it? Have a look at it. It's in verse 5. Can you pick it? What's the purpose for removing the plank out of your own eye? Besides the obvious that you're no longer a hypocrite. You got it? So that you can see clearly to help your brother with the speck. Because I tell you what, your sister doesn't want the speck anymore. She wants it out. He wants it out. The way to help him, the way to help her to get it out, is to make sure you take the plank out of your own eye. It's not so that you are robbed of helping your brother and no longer, therefore, a hypocrite. There's nothing in the body more sensitive than the eye. The instant we touch it, it closes it up. You have eyelids, you have eyelashes, all there, put there by God to protect something so beautiful. 
so sensitive. What's required in clearing an eye is gentleness and carefulness and patience and sympathy for the other person. In the spiritual realm, the care should be more delicate for we are handling the human life, the human soul. Galatians 6 verse 1, Sisters and brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. What's the next word? Gently. But watch yourselves, or you too will be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Take the plank out of your own eye. In these two areas of sensitivity, uh, it's about judging. Judging is engaging what a recent book calls moral talk. In this book, US philosophers Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke show that the moral talk is valuable. It's essential even. But they also point out that there's a problem with moral talk, namely this. Instead of using moral talk to do good, to help your brother with a speck that he doesn't want to be there, People use moral talk to look good, to gain recognition as morally impressive or even to dominate others. The authors call this grandstanding, which is the other title of their book. Grandstanding is the abuse of moral talk to either gain prestige in the eyes of others or to gain power over others, and it is common. The book makes the claim that it's not anecdotal evidence, it's empirical evidence that drives this conclusion, this thesis, from psychological and social research. There is empirical evidence that people typically think that they are morally better than others. Quite frankly, I don't need the research. I think it's pretty clear. Studies show, they write, that we tend to rate our conduct as morally superior to the average person's. We tend to think that we are more likely than others to do good and less likely than others to do bad. And in doing so, we deceive ourselves, they write. But not that we're aware of what we're doing. We're unaware that that's a a, a drive we have in us. Few biases in human judgment are easier than to demonstrate, easier to demonstrate than self-righteousness, the tendency to believe one is more moral than others. Or Jesus says, "Plank, gone, first. Sensitivity to your own faults." as the basis for helping a sister, a brother. Jesus here, in verses 1 through 5, is not saying you can't make judgments. Jesus himself made judgments all the time. Woe to you hypocrites, he said. You can make judgments. After all, you've picked the speck of dust in your brother's eye. Instead, he is speaking in his usual imaginative and forceful way to destabilize the whole temptation to grandstanding. He's undermining the whole confidence we have in our own moral judgments as compared to others. I think it throws us to God in the end. Being sensitive to God as judge and sensitive to your own faults will do two things. It'll make you sober. It'll make you humble. Because people can be drunk with pride. We'll take a moment of pause if you're sensitive in these two spaces. Third, you'll be sensitive to your audience in verse 6. This is the pearls before swine. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. 
If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The structure, by the way, is A-B-B-A. The first bit, do not give to dogs what is sacred. They'll turn you to pieces. That's A. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. B, those pigs will trample the pearls under their feet. You got it? You see that? Don't give to your dogs what's sacred. They'll, tramp, they'll turn, you to, uh, uh, turn on you and tear you to pieces. Don't throw your pearls before swine. If you do, they'll trample them under your feet. Now, what does this mean? Well, in the first instance, it means uh, that if you have something sacred, don't bother tossing it to a dog. You know, it's telling you what to do if you've got a, a dog and something sacred. If you toss the something sacred to the dog, they won't recognise it as sacred and they'll turn on you anyway. That's what he's saying on first instance. What about the pigs? Well, if you have some pearls, I don't own pearls. Wife does. But if you have some pearls and you at the same time have some pigs, suggestion, don't give the pearls to the pigs. Because if you do, they won't recognise it as valuable and you'll, you'll lose them. They'll trample them underfoot. So on the surface, without any other explanation, Jesus is saying, if you're a dog owner, if you're a pig owner, don't do what you probably wouldn't do anyways. So, it has to mean something else. And yet it's not explained. Jesus doesn't say what he means. I wonder whether Jesus offers this, it becomes so used in society, so well known, and yet without explanation. I wonder if Jesus is saying, use your wisdom to figure out what this might mean in your life. Maybe we can get at it this way. A person who throws a pearl before a pig neither grasps the true value of the pearl nor the stomach of a pig. You've missed both. And Jesus is saying, grasp both. Value of the pearl, the stomach of the pig. If you give a pig a pearl, then you've given your animal something they cannot digest. Don't be surprised if they trample it underfoot. They're expecting corn. They're expecting slops. The pearl is of great value, but the pig doesn't perceive the brilliance of what he has. Same with the dog. Um, if you give your dog something that's sacred, you've neither placed value on what is sacred nor understood the stomach of the dog. Jesus here is not saying that there are people out there who are pigs and you should name them as such. Rather, he is castigating the caregivers. He's not castigating the pig. He's not castigating the dog. He's castigating the caregiver. In other words, you're the problem. See, to his audience. Jesus doesn't explain it, um, but quite possibly he means something like this. Pick the treasure and pick your audience. If you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the kingdom, if you have Jesus Christ, then you have the pearl of great price. If I can bring another parable into, into this story. You have what is supremely valuable. You have eternal life, ultimate grace, meaning, a path of right and wrong. It's not yours to determine. It's been given to you from above. You have something that is truly valuable. But if you meet somebody who mocks the gospel, 
then first tell yourself the valuable of the thing you have in your hands, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And recognize your audience. Perhaps there's somebody who can't digest it. And then in that moment, perhaps, perhaps, you know, use your wisdom, don't do it. It's okay to let it go in that moment, to come back later. And the example that springs to mind is I was on the university campus at the University of Sydney when I, when I was a student there, and the first time that I ever got profoundly laughed at, I tried to explain to somebody that the resurrection put meaning in life and hope after death. And these two young ladies absolutely pummeled me with laughter. And I look back now and think, you know, I went in to try to prove a point. But maybe it was okay to say, okay, well, you know, not ready, that's okay, we'll come back, maybe we'll meet you in Manning in a year's time and we'll talk about it. Maybe they're thinking of it now, you know, I don't know. This pearls before swine idea is, is uh, it can't be a rule for life. It's got to be a wisdom thing in life because it's interesting that Jesus placed himself before those who would oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus submitted himself to Gentiles and the Roman authorities who flogged him, spat on him, mocked him and put him to death. In Psalm 22, Jesus quotes, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that same quote, the psalmist says, I have been surrounded by dogs. Dogs surround me. Jesus did this. He gave himself up. He threw his pearl himself before swine, if I can put it this way. He did it out of love. He did it because he wanted to save you and me. He did it because God is the great giver. So fourth point, we need to be sensitive to God as giver in verses 7 to 11. We need to be sensitive to God as a father, a good father, not an evil one. The person who knows God as giver opens their heart wide to others, asks it, Jesus, in verse 7, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It is a promise. My father was correct. Of course, we look at uh, such a promise and we think, can it be true? I wonder if Jesus is saying, let your imagination be gripped by the possibility of this God who is so good. Ask, he says. Seek, he says. Knock. Ask, and it will be given to you. What is it? Well, Jesus says what it is. Later on, he says, your heavenly Father, your Father in heaven, he'll give good gifts to those who ask him. I wonder whether deep down we wonder whether God is withholding from us, that he's in fact a bad father rather than having the imagination to know that whatever we ask for, he's re- more than we imagine he's ready to give, more than we are to receive. Ask and will be given. Seek, Jesus says, and you will find. What will you find? You'll find God. In this equivalent passage in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 11, verse 13, Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, I love that line, by the way, though you are evil, you dads, you know you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him. You'll find God. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 28, uh, Moses says, if from this pigsty of your own choices, this sinful place, from this exile, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Knock, he says, and the door will be open. What door? The door 
to the kingdom of God, all that God has promised through King Jesus. In Luke 12, verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And the proof? Gosh, look at your own dads, even the bad ones, even the ones that weren't that good. They wanted to give you good things. Which of you, verse 9, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? I know such a father exists, and we call the police when, when one does. But Jesus is making a sort of a more provocative point here. Even a mafia dad knows to give his child bread when they ask for bread. Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a snake? No. If you then, though you are evil, know how to, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He wants to give more than you ask or imagine. And so in verse 12, so in everything, if your Father in heaven is like this, he's good like this, in everything, in the same way, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. How do you live, verse 12, in a world stripped of grace? You'll need to be sensitive again. Take down the walls of hostility, the prickliness towards others, be sensitive, not to your own desires. You don't need any encouragement to do that. Be sensitive, not to your own sense of right and wrong, as if it were determined within. You don't need any encouragement for that. Rather, be sensitive to God. He's the judge, not you. Hop off the throne of judgment. You don't belong there. Be sensitive, then, to your own faults. Be sensitive to others. Be sensitive to the goodness of God, and then praise him. I want to leave you with this quote that you could look back over tonight on page two from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he reflected on the Psalms and how so much of the Psalms is praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. He's like, why does God need all this praise? Lewis reflected on this and he said this, I had not noticed my whole life, he said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and generous minds praised most while the cranks, misfits and malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal. The deceptic and the snob found fault with all, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be Inner health made audible. Let's pray. Father, we want this inner health, this life that Jesus speaks about, to be made audible in a world stripped of grace. And so, Father, this evening we follow Jesus. We follow him. We seek a, deep, a deeper discipleship where tired of skirting on the edges of this relationship with him, of seeking all the time to be moral and to show our morality, but without relating to the one who is good, the one who determines right from wrong, the one who forgives our transgressions and gives us a hope now and a hope beyond the grave. We choose Jesus Christ and we ask that he might do his thing in our life, 
that our inner health may be made audible for Christ's sake. Amen.